This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland is the first of three given at the Koan Ancestors Retreat on November 2, 2012 at Mountain Cloud Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I want to begin tonight um, setting the field for the weekend by picking up a conversation we have um, every once in a while. And it's a conversation that has come to feel to me like maybe the most important one we can have right now or something about the essential, the essential thing um, to, to work with at this um, stage um, so that we can go on to, to other things eventually. But it has to do with this question of do you choose to live your life by self or by vow? And it seems to me that how you answer that question makes all the difference in the world to how your life is and how the world is around you. When I talk about living um, a life by self, I'm talking about living a self-centered life, but not quite in the way we usually think of it, not, not, not only meaning selfish or self-indulgent. Um, to live a, a self-centered life, in, in our sense, is to live a life that completely believes in the reality of the self. And not only completely believes in the reality of the self, but believes that um, my opinions, my reactions, my ways of experiencing things are the most important thing, more important often than reality. Um, so we will have a chance to talk some more about that later in the weekend. I just want to um, kind of go over the territory. That's, that's a kind of self-centered life. And one of the results of that choice is that we are at the mercy of karma. We are always embroiled in causes and conditions because that's the landscape. Um, at the layer of experience of that, um, what, what we're, we're going to call surface self, which is what a great Japanese philosopher of the 20th century, Nishida uh, Kitaro, called it. He, he called that the surface self. We've talked about it as the constructed self. Um, but at the layer of that surface self, the landscape is causes and conditions. The landscape is karma, and it's and we are enmeshed in that. So the other option that our tradition offers is the possibility of living by vow instead. Um, what that means is that instead of placing the concerns of the self and the perspective of the self at the center, instead of making that the stake to which you have tethered yourself and by which your life will be constrained, we put something else at the center. And the simplest way to say that is that we put a kind of um, care and concern for the largest field we can be aware of living in at the center instead. That's what the vow does. The vow says, 
pay attention to as much of what's happening around you as you can and be alert to the ways in which you might respond helpfully. If that's at the center of your life, things are going to be very different. And one of the ways they're going to be very different is that you are not at the mercy of karma. Because this amazing thing happens over and over and over again, which is a kind of instantaneous breaking of the karmic knots and ties and inevitabilities, the interruptions. This is a way of beautiful interruptions where the inevitable thing doesn't have to happen because we've shifted our perspective and we're putting something else at the center. So there are a couple of ways we do that. The... um, The kind of fundamental way is the bodhisattva vow, and that's what I'm talking about. The bodhisattva vow is the vow to pay attention to what's happening around us and checking to see if we can be helpful. That's pretty much what it means. Um, Then we sort of elaborate the bodhisattva vow, and sometimes we choose to take refuge and to take the precepts. So we've got these other vows that we're making, which are um, how we live out in a nitty-gritty way, day-to-day, the bodhisattva vow. And then what I want to bring in for us to to consider this weekend is that if there is a surface self, there's also what Nishida called a free self. Um, And there's, you know, there's a kind of geography of it. If if the surface self is up here, you know, the free self is down here at at depth. Um, And I just, I want to say parenthetically that... um, Everything I'm saying is completely metaphorical. I'm not trying to like cast something in concrete that you have to sign on to. It's really not like that. It's not like, you know, two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, and a free self. You know, it's, it's, it's not concrete like that. But it gives us a way of provisionally talking about what we think we're doing. Okay? So just hold it, hold it provisionally. Um, it kind of like... You know how, how scientists are always explaining like some quantum field effect with maple syrup and pancakes? You know, they're, they're great with those kinds of like, uh, you know, Hamish metaphors. Okay, this is a Hamish metaphor, okay? Um, okay, so, so free self. And um, when, we, when we are able to connect with that free self, we discover that each of us has a particular vow, a vow particular to each of us, which has something to do with um, the shape of our lives in a very important way. Um, So one of the things that, that I'd like you to hold as a question during the weekend is, what is my original vow, which is what this is called? What is my original vow? the vow before everything else, the vow that at the deepest level, at the freest level of my being, is the engine, the modus operandi of how I live. The thing about this original vow um, and the free self is that they rest in that place where we experience that we are one with the Dharmakaya, one with the vastness. 
one with the universe, where we know that it's just continuous universe, you know, right through us. And in that place, with that experience, we can discover the original vow that is particular to each of us, which is completely compatible with, harmonious with, the original vow of the Dharmakaya, the original vow of the vastness. There's no rub there. There's no conflict. There's an absolute harmony between the universal great vow of the cosmos to exist and our particular vow that we live out in our lives. Um, so we will, um, we will talk a bunch more about that as, as the weekend goes on. Um, but one of the things that, that seems so important to me is that if we're using a self to destroy a self, you know, if we're deciding that the, the surface self is the problem that needs to be fixed, but we're using the tools of the surface to try to fix it, we're just going to dig ourselves in deeper and deeper and deeper, right? Yes, Steffi says, yes. <laughs> um, so we need something else. We cannot use we cannot use ourselves to manage ourselves, to fix ourselves, to destroy ourselves, to deny ourselves, to do any of that kind of thing. Because when we talk about moving from self to vow, we're not talking about self denial or um, self abnegation. That's as much about the self as self indulgence is. It's still all about the self. So we're talking about this other thing that circumvents that problem of trying to solve the problems of the self with the self. And, and, by, and we do that by this kind of um, what, what, what Ellie calls the moment on the submarine when the captain yells, dive, dive, dive. You know, we're talking about doing this. It was, I thought it was here. It was Ellie. You don't remember. <laughs> um, how do we do that? How do we drop down to that place of the free self? and the original vow, where we know, where we experience that we are one with the Dharmakaya. Um, the answer to that question is why meditation is actually important. It's why retreats are important. It's why these conversations are important. It's why it is really important to keep turning our attention there, allowing ourselves to fall, allowing ourselves to be pulled. Because if we are pushed toward the depths, toward that free self we yearn for, if we are pushed by our awareness of suffering, of our own suffering, of the suffering of our own heart-minds, and of the suffering of others, which can feel so unbearable, if that's what's pushing us into the dive, something has to be pulling us to. Something has to be pulling us from the depths. And what is pulling us is where I would like to spend the rest of the evening as a way of um, allowing ourselves to dive, allowing ourselves to go down, and to remember that it is so important to always be aware of that deep and free place of the original vow, which is pulling us toward the free self, if we will just let it. So, um,
what I would like to focus on tonight is what we might call a kind of spiritual ecology of that place. Um, and this is the, the, in particular, the spiritual ecology developed in Taoism and Chan, which was an attempt to speak metaphorically, to speak imagistically about that place of the free self and the original vow. So that you can, um, you can experience for yourself, experience directly, what is known as the power of the Dharmakaya's original vow moving through you. And you can experience coming to match that power with your own power and your own original vow, um, the one that's particular to you. In our relationship to that vow and the sense of it involving our awareness of a much larger thing, a much more expansive, ancient, eternal um, thing. Here's a very old and very simple description that comes from um, Mencius, who is one of the great Confucian scholars. He said, um, 10,000 things means everything. It's a Chinese way of saying the whole manifest universe. The 10,000 things are all here in me. And there's no greater joy than looking within and finding myself faithful to them. Devote yourself to this. The 10,000 things are all here in me. And there's no greater joy than looking within and finding myself faithful to them. Devote yourself to this. So we're going to do something a bit different. We are going to do the ancestors of the koans. Words that relate to this deep spiritual ecology. And what I want to do tonight is just um, introduce them so that you can spend time as you wish with them tonight and over the next few days. So each little grouping, every, does it, are there enough for everyone? Each little grouping has the, um, the way a Chinese character is written now on the left. That's how you would run across it in a book now. And on the right are older forms of the characters. When you and I included them because sometimes you can see things more clearly in the older forms because they're they're more um, frankly pictographic, so you can you can get a, a stronger sense for what it's saying and then the um, English translation with it and sometimes there's a there's a kind of bonus older character like like a, a, the first one self. On the left is the way we write self now. On the right is the old form of it. 
which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense until you look at an even older form of it, which is that tall, thin figure kind of hanging off the bottom. And when you look at that, you can see that self comes from the torso. Can you see how the torso morphs through the old form into the new form? That's, that's a kind of amazing interpretation, or a, a, a depiction of self, isn't it? That figure is quite, is quite something. And then next to that is um, Dharma, which has layers and layers of meaning. It has one layer of meaning as the Tao, the way things are, the, you know, the totality of everything. It has another meaning of the teachings, the way, and a third meaning of um, everything that exists is a Dharma. <laughs> everything that, that manifests in the world is a Dharma. And if you look at the one right next to it, that's the old pictographic form. And on the left, you, you can probably understand that that's um, a depiction of water, of a, of a river flowing. And on the right, it's a person leaving an exit. So the meaning is going. So it's water going. It's the way water goes, the flow of water. Um, the patterns that water makes as it flows. So when this majestic concept called Dharma came from India to China, this is how they chose to represent it, as the flow of water. Um, that's kind of beautiful, you know, the pattern that, wa- that, that water makes as it flows. And then down, hanging off the right, I threw in another character... Um, just for grins, because in that version of water flowing, there's also a unicorn. The, the figure in the upper right is a unicorn. Um, I don't know why, but if anybody has a theory, I'm really interested in why a unicorn should appear in that old form of the character. Um, the next grouping is original vow, which applies both to the Dharmakaya itself, to the vastness itself, and to each of us. And on the pictographic form, maybe you can see that, that it's about the roots. That's the, the word original. Um, there's that, there's a, a tree and the roots hanging down underground, and then there's a horizontal thing which is marking page. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about the roots here. And this word um, means not only original, but it also means fundamental. So it's not just what was there at the beginning, it's what's there all the time. It's what, what's there at the root of every moment, um, at the heart of things always. That's what that original means. And um, vow is a combination of a spring, as in a water, source of water, on the left, and a head on the right. So... It's a head at, at, at a spring. We'll, we'll see. We'll play with that. Then the next group um, begins below that on the left, and that's the heart-mind. And as we've often said, in Chinese, the, the heart, it's only one word for both heart and mind. And that's the word on the, on the left. And then on the right is the pictogram that comes from, and that is meant to be a depiction of a heart, of a physical, an actual physical heart, with its chambers and it's um, vessel, blood vessels coming off of it, arteries coming off of it. Then next to that is, is thought and feeling. And um, this is what I mentioned at the very beginning. 
the the word for thought involves a heart and a field. So thought is the field land of the heart. And feeling involves the heart. The thing on the left, the upright thing with two dots coming off of it, is another way to write heart. So it's heart and that blue-green color of the landscape. So it's the landscape color of the heart. And one of the things that seems really important to me is that immediately it's being suggested to us that our hearts, our minds are much bigger than what is encapsulated in our bodies and that they're continuous with the world, with the fields and the colors of the landscape. That, that we extend into the world and the world extends into us. That, that our heart minds are made up of the fields, the places we see, the, the landscapes we're in and the colors of it and the smells of it and all of that, that those are inextricable that we're always that big. And that's the place of the free self, the place of experiencing that we're always that big. Below that is um, emptiness, the modern character on the upper left. Next to it, the older character, and then hanging off the bottom of that, um, that figure is the oldest representation. This is this is the Mu of or, or Wu in Chinese of Zhao Zhou's No. This is Zhao Zhou's No. This is what this this is the vastness, this is emptiness, this is Shunyata, this is you know Dharmakaya, this is like this giant, huge, big word in our tradition. And you know what it started out as? It started out as a woman dancing holding foxtails in her hands. That's what that's a pictograph of. So what does that say about emptiness? You know, it's it's not a vacuum. <laughs> it's not a, it's not an absence. It's a it's a dynamic living presence, and so much so that down on the left below that, I wanted to show you that the word for dance is basically emptiness with feet. Yeah. Huh? Isn't it? So so let that soak in. Let that's a really you know again. Buddhism comes to China. China says, how are we going to translate that? They choose this to translate that. This is, this is so deep in their understanding of what the nature of Dharmakaya, of the vastness, is. It's dynamic and alive and full of so much. Okay, so that's the, that's the, the emptiness side. Um, next to that, on the right, is the form side, which is manifestation. And in the pictograph there, you can see maybe that that is a hand over the moon. I don't know what that means, but that's something I would love to spend some time with this weekend. Why should manifestation be a hand over the moon? Are you talking about the left or the right? Um, On the right, uh, just above the word manifestation. Okay, so on the top of the, the next page, we have a cluster of four things that all have to do with weaving and silk. The first is, um, the upper left, is the dark mysterious. So this is the place, this is the original place. This is um, um, 
rivers of light stream in the dark, stream from the dark. This is that dark they're streaming from. This is everything that we don't know. This is everything that is beyond our control, that is undomesticated, that is um, wild and free, that our practice is about meeting with our own wildness and our own freedom. And when you look at the old pictogram, maybe you can, you can see that, that, dark, that darkness comes from um, two silkworm cocoons with thread coming, three threads coming out of the top of them. So the darkness of the cocoon, you know, the hiddenness, the mysterious dark inside the cocoon that gives birth to something, in this case, strings of silk. Next to that is the great cosmic loom. Um, in, the, in the first case of the Book of Serenity, which is one of the, the old um, Cohen collections, there's a comment, um, creation is endlessly running her loom and shuttle, weaving the ancient brocade. So everything that is, everything that is manifest is that brocade constantly being woven on this cosmic loom. And you can see the, um, the silkworm cocoons in the upper right of the, of the old pictogram, and then, the, and then there's a tree next to it representing the loom, the wood of the loom. So then we go to, um, to a word that means both warp in, in, on a loom and weaving and came to mean sutra. So the warp, you can also probably see the, the cocoons of silk with the silk dangling down from them. Um, also included in that on the, on, the, on the right of the pictogram is water above and earth below. So there's the sense of on the cosmic loom, there's the warp, the stuff that's essential, the stuff that, that um, into which everything that happens is woven. And that's, um, th- that's water and earth and um, culture and, you know, the, fa- the very fabric of the cosmos. And that came to mean sutra, because, which is a, a text, a sacred text, because there was a sense that that was the warp, that's part of the warp, um, the dharma of the sutras, is part of the essential thing onto which the brocade of everything is woven. And then um, the last part of that cluster is gateway. And this is the, the gate of the Cohen collection called the Gateless Gate. And it's the gate that when Yunmen says barrier, this is, this is what he's talking about. Check out what, is, what it is. It's um, a doorway to the loom. It's a doorway to the great loom. So that is our gate. That is our, our gateless gate which takes us right into the universe of the loom, the cosmic loom. Below that is um, the word for universe, which is spooky, um, modern. 
It's space and time. That's what it means. But when you look at it, I didn't include the old because you can see it pretty clearly in the in the modern characters. Um, on the, the 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 little things on the top are roofs. You can see the two roofs. Each one has a roof, and then something is underneath the roof. And on the left, what's underneath the roof is breath. It's the streams of breath, the streams of chi, coming from the universe down into the world and held in in home. And then on the right, it's a seed that's beginning to sprout. So space is breath under the eaves of the universe. And time is seed, is the endlessly generating seed. So this is our our breath seed home, which is the universe. And finally, um, two that go together. The first is Chan, which is what we do. And the, on the, the left part of Chan, you've got two horizontal lines and three verticals coming down from that. That represents the way that Chi comes into the world. The horizontal lines are the sky, heaven, the heavens, and um, the dark mysterious. Above that, that's the little, I think. This, this is... Jones' etymology. Um, every, everybody believes that the, lar- the larger horizontal line is the heavens. Joan believes that the shorter horizontal line above that is the dark mysterious. And from that radiate three streams of light from the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those are those three lines coming down. And it is in <coughs> that radiation of light from sun, moon, and stars that chi flows down into the world constantly. And you might have caught the rhyme with um, the silk the silk cocoons with three, th- three threads coming out of them. There's something, there's a rhyme there. And then the part on the right um, means alone. Um, com- it means complete in itself. Um, for those of us who, who were here in the spring, I think it was the spring we talked about it, it means exhausted in the sense of completed, gone all the way through, utterly and entirely done. So um, Chan, the word that, that the Chinese chose to describe what it is we do, is this combination of the radiant streaming from the universe into our world and completely, entirely alone with that. So is it us alone in it or is it the thing itself alone and complete? Or is it both? (laughs) And then Related is um, the word for ancestor, which is that radiance streaming from the dark, um, caught in under a roof, held under a roof. So that's what an ancestor is. That which, which allows the radiance to, um, to pool under a roof so that we can experience it.
So please do as you wish with this. Um, Just spend time on it, bring it into your meditation, riff on it. We'll be talking about it all weekend. But this is really for you to to do as you wish with and um, see where it takes you. There's no... um, you can't be wrong about any of this. So just go with, with where it takes you, as we do with koans. And let's see what happens. When we look at these um, ancestors of the koans, these, these um, beautiful metaphors, beautiful images, powerful ideas encoded in these you know, pictographs that could be carved on a wall somewhere around here, you know? How did these then grow into the stories that became the koans? Any any questions just at the level of meaning? Anything that went by too fast, Jen? Well, I know it didn't go by too fast, but so under manifestation, for example, mm-hmm. and also in feeling that thing on the bottom, mm-hmm. is, is that both moon and gate? Or am I confusing it with something else? It's moon. It's moon both times. Moon both times. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you wrong. It's moon with manifestation. With feeling, I'm remembering um, from the ancient thing, it's actually a, a well. Okay. So it's a well with a tree above it. Just which, which part? Which, right? Just the bottom part that looks like a moon elsewhere. Yeah. The, is feeling, you said? Yeah, feeling the, the lower right element is, is a, um, a well. And um, the sense of it was that it was like this, the centerpiece, which is marked by the two horizontal lines, that's the well, and then there are all the fields around it that are made possible by the well at the center. Who made up these pictographs? <laughs> um, people in the um, Shang and Zhou dynasties, you know, so people um, almost 4,000 years ago, 4,000 to 3,000 years ago. So they invented this They invented this. Language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I was talking with someone recently about how uh, you know, when you have this kind of pictographic language versus an alphabetical language, and this this language was developed, it seems in large part in order to perform divinations. These are or, some of these are like oracle bone characters. So, so the Chinese needed language so they could do divination. Um, in the West, the Phoenicians needed language so that they could be merchants, <laughs> so that they could keep track of their stuff. <laughs> And so they developed an alphabetical language, yeah. which is much simpler. Like this, Margot Margo said this beautiful thing. She said, "This, this is the, this is the um, written language of people with not a lot to say and a whole lot of time." <laughs> I have a question. You said manifestation is hand over the moon, but then I heard tree over the well. That's feeling. Feeling is tree over yeah, the well. Yeah, oh, yeah, and then I have a pen. So yeah. Okay. And hard on the left of feeling. Okay. Yeah. Nancy. So that was my question about language is um, putting the symbols together to create language so that you can tell a story or ask a question. How does it work with tense and grammar and 
inflection and all the things that you get in other kinds of, of languages. This, this is one of my favorite subjects, so I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, in classical Chinese, which is the language of the koans, there is no tense. There is no verb tense at all. Um, there's no number. You don't know how many of somethings. There's very rarely a subject of a sentence. So you have a completely different sense about what you're doing. You know, what you're doing is you're sort of, you're putting up, these are, these are so tatagata, these things, right? They're so thus, you know, so you put up a thus and a thus and a thus and a thus, and it's up to the reader to make the connections between them. So there's a very strong sense of an eternal presence, uh, an eternal present in classical Chinese because it's uninflected. Um, there's, there, is, there is a little particle you can add when you want to make really clear that something happened in the past, but it's very, very rare. Um, more often, you'll, you'll, there are locutions like, at the time when. And so it's sort of like once upon a time, you know you're talking about something in the past. But it's such a, it's such a different experience reading classical Chinese because of that, because of that timeless, present, really Tathagata quality of the language. In, in the same period, would that have been true of, of the spoken language as well? No. Okay. No, it would have been more inflected. Yeah. It's sort of like it, classical Chinese is a literary language, and diverged like like a modern Chinese speaker can't necessarily read classical Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they would um, they used what are called oracle bones, which are things like tortoise shells and ox scapulae, and they would carve the question into the tortoise shell or the ox scapulae and put it on the fire, and then they would look at the cracks of, uh, that occurred in the fire as as their answer. And we have a lot of them. There are a lot of them that survive because they're robust. Yeah, because it would seem like the people who were the teachers. The Interesting. Yeah, they did. They they were very strong on recording them, recording the questions, and and that's a good. And I'm not exactly sure why, but that's intriguing. Yeah. I was just thinking. It reminds me of the notation of music at the time of Gregorian chant, when it wasn't the timing wasn't so straight the way we have it now, and even the height. I mean, you you see that it goes higher, it goes lower, but beautiful. I, my understanding of that is 
you don't really know where to start because the signs tell you up or down. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know the starting point, you know, so that it would be different every time in particular. Is that, is that right? a good time to go to war? Should I marry that person? You know, all the usual questions that monarchs have. (laughs) (laughs) So, in the the classic Chan Cohen collections, you know, from what, the 10th, 11th century, the, the case itself maybe even certainly the commentary but even the case would have been in language that was more inflected but in some way the koan makes a feel that has the feel of something like these characters it's uninflected in the koans yeah it's what makes it so challenging to translate them yeah how about the commentary um they tend to be a little bit more informative, you know, a little bit more discursive in the way that they're written, but they're still, classical Chinese are still pretty unaffected. Yeah. Okay, we should probably come to a close. Um, anything you, that must be asked or that you want to comment on before we do? Anything from any questions from my talk or comments? Now, so you're saying that while we're diving, something is also pulling us. Yeah. And your question is, what is pulling us? That's that, that's that's one of the questions. I mean, my experience is that kind of the things that push and pull us, if, if, if our suffering and the suffering of others pushes us, what pulls us is that most of us have either intimations or convictions that there's something much larger, you know, and that, that's what pulls us, is that those intimations, if we're interested in following them. Are, are we going to go toward um, the possible friendly between the surface self and the free self? Yes. <laughs> yes, because in the end, right, like, like the, huge, the huge mistake of tr- trying to deal with it at the surface level is you think that the surface self ne- needs to be whipped into shape or destroyed or something, you know, and that's a, there's a lot of spiritual practice that's about that. But actually it's about the free self and the surface self coming into the right relationship mm-hmm. because the free self absolutely needs the surface self. Mm-hmm. So that's the movement. Is that like those intimations like words were? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, in the, oh, what's the ode? Wordsworth talks about intimations of immortality. 
Yeah. That's what just came to mind. Mm-hmm. Just like that. Anything else? Okay, as with all our retreats, not everything happens um, in the daylight or the lamplight. Um, not, every, not everything happens in the bright. We also really value what happens in the dark, what happens underground, um, what, we're not, we, what we're not yet conscious of. So we bring our dreams into the retreat. Um, it, and for those who want to talk about it, we'll, we'll talk about it in the morning. And it's quite remarkable to watch what happens with people's dreams, even over a, a, a very short retreat like this. So if you wish to do this, um, when you go to sleep tonight and tomorrow night and the next 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 night, the next night forever and ever, um, see if you can, you can go easily to bed. Um, and as you're settling in, you can ask to remember a dream. You can ask to have a dream about something if you want. You can ask to have a dream about one of these images or something that's come up, or you can just ask for a dream in general. Um, and when you wake up in the morning, don't jump out of bed. We start at nine. That's not so early. So don't don't jump and and um, scare away the dream. Just lie there, keep your eyes closed, and see if you if anything comes to you, if you can feel any part of the dream, remember any part of the dream. And if you, can, if you can't remember storyline or images, see if you're waking up with a particular feeling. And if you're waking up with a feeling, go into that and see if you can follow the feeling back to what the dream was. Okay? So just um, pay attention to that. Dreams are the koans of the night. Koans are the dreams of the day. You know? And it's really... Our practice just rolls on um, through all states of consciousness. That's a lot of what these koan retreats are about, is watching how we hold the thread through whatever state of consciousness we're in. Meditation or talking or eating or walking around or sleeping and dreaming. Okay? These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.